Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Dara Lind, an immigration expert who is a senior reporter, has been covering the Trump administration's policies on immigration and other things for Vox. I wanted to have her on the program today because immigration has fallen a little bit out of the news in the last couple weeks, thanks to all kinds of things from the Kavanaugh hearings to the Bob Woodward book. And I wanted to focus back a little bit on it because I think it's a really important issue and it's one that uh, we should go back to. And I also we can also discuss some uh, some more current things as well. So uh, Dara, who is joining us from our Washington, D.C. studios, is here. Dara, thank you for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. You say it's been, you know, off the off the radar, but I just, you know, raced into the studio after filing on a new draft regulation. So the wheels are in motion. What was what, what were you filing about? Uh, so as as you may know from the fight over family separation and the treatment of families apprehended at the border earlier this summer, the Trump administration has wanted for a while to be able to keep families together in immigration detention for as long as their cases are pending, which is often like a matter of months. Uh, They can't do that under a federal court settlement that was put up in 1997. But that settlement says this is in place until the federal government puts together regulations. For 20 years, nobody put together regulations and the Trump administration has just, you know, pre-published, technically they're going to be published tomorrow, a regulation that says, okay, it's our understanding that we can, we are going to be allowed to detain children with their parents in ICE facilities uh, that those facilities don't have to be licensed by the state. They can just kind of adhere to certain standards. And instead of going through a licensing process, we're just going to let a third party audit them. And if there's a willing third party, we'll assume they're OK. And the extra legal protections that apply to kids who come to the U.S. without a parent, uh, which include they have, they're guaranteed a hearing before an immigration judge. They're sent into Health and Human Services custody, which is less restrictive. Those extra protections don't apply anymore once you turn 18 or once we find out that there's a parent you have in the U.S. who's willing to take you. So uh, at least half of these children who are currently designated unaccompanied would like lose the extra legal protections they have. So this is the Flores Agreement that you're talking yes. about, uh, which was yes. 1997, I guess. So 21 years is that, or 98, something like that. But um, yeah, it's yeah, officially in 97, and you know, there's been there have been ongoing court questions about okay, is this is this thing the government is doing complying with it? So it's you know continued to be in the news, including this summer. Um, but the kind of underlying structure is that it was supposed to exist temporarily, and then the government was going to issue regulations that were consistent with it, and then the agreement would go away. So we're recording this Thursday afternoon, East Coast time, and you said the regulations will be published tomorrow when the podcast goes up. So I I guess my question is, once the regulations go up, how likely is this to stand up in court? Does it does it depend on the specifics of the regulations, how far the Trump administration is willing to go in um, reaching some standards that courts can like? Or is this something that will the regulation are they likely to be struck down right away? How, how do you see that playing out? So this isn't going to officially go up in front of a court for a matter of months, because as with any regulation, it's you know released as a draft, then the public gets 60 days to comment, then the government is supposed to read all the comments, and then it's going to put up the final rule. So like once, you know, we, we do have a period of time during which there's going to be a lot of, you know, advocates will be drawing a lot of attention to you shouldn't be keeping children in detention period, you shouldn't be keeping children in facilities that aren't 
being licensed by the state, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, assuming that the final rule is essentially identical to the one that they're proposing now, it's not totally clear. There's going to be a 45-day window essentially for that to get challenged for the same judge who's been overseeing this Flores agreement to review. And then it kind of gets into, well, what counts as consistent with an agreement? The the purpose this isn't like some of the things that the Trump administration has done. For example, uh, their attempt this summer to just kind of declare by fiat that the uh, Flores agreement allowed them to detain families because the alternative would be separating them. That didn't go over super well because it was just a declaration. But this is actually following a process that a judge has said is necessary. And so it gets into this ongoing dynamic that we've seen with a lot of the Trump administration's policies, which is that in theory, the federal government has a lot of authority. The executive branch in particular has a lot of authority over how to set immigration policy. And we've, you know, there's been a lot of judicial pushback, but it's never, that's often been because judges are, see the end point of what the Trump administration is doing and are horrified by it and are kind of, you know, taking a stand on issues where they wouldn't necessarily have said what you are doing is unconstitutional, it's illegal, it exceeds the bounds of your authority. So I think it's, I'm not really keen on making a prediction here, if only because if you'd asked me, I would have assumed that uh, earlier versions of the travel ban would have gotten upheld than the one that eventually did. I've been surprised by how unified the courts have been in putting a hold on the efforts to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. In general, I've underestimated the extent to which federal judges are willing to say, we don't care that this is typically an executive branch thing. You're not going to go this far. Is there a particular thing that um, activists or people who are you know, worried about uh, the people that the Flores settlement that no longer respecting it would would affect um, that something specific when these regulations go into effect that could affect their lives in some particular way that you'd be worried about? I mean, the fundamental question is, does the federal government have an obligation to not keep children in immigration detention, right? The federal government says that these extra protections were originally supposed to apply only to children who weren't with their parents. The way that the judges interpreted it is that there are extra standards that have to be considered for children. And it doesn't matter whether they're with their parents or not, that you're really, you know, that even if they're with their parents, the the family unit should be judged based on the protections of the child rather than the protections of the parent is essentially what's going on here. So like, you're going to see some noise about these facilities need to have stricter licensing requirements, uh, concerns in particular about some pretty broad loopholes that allow a facility to say, well, it's an emergency. We don't have to meet these standards for, you know, giving you food and leisure time right now or something like that. But really, the question here is, is it appropriate for the federal government to treat the detention of family units together, i.e. of children, as an appropriate purpose of immigration enforcement? There's usually, you know, a lot of common sense kind of treatments of immigration policy treat children as the blameless, you know, kind of collateral of their parents' actions. And there's kind of a common sense feeling that the Trump administration shouldn't be punishing children for their parents' actions, which I think is what... M- kind of unifies the backlash to family separation and the backlash to the attempts to end DACA. But the Trump administration believes that if you 
create extra protections for children, that adults will take advantage of those, and that anything they can do to deter families from coming to the U.S. without papers is kind of ipso facto appropriate. What is the status of the children who were separated from their parents today? How many remain uh, separated and how are, are there are there different ways to group them in terms of how how long we can expect until they are reunited? Yeah, I mean, we're dealing with, I think, about 500, although there's probably going to be another progress report um, between when we're taping this and when it gets, you know, released, because Thursday night tends to be the night that we get, you know, updates in the Mrs. L litigation. Um, but we're we've passed the point where quick progress can be made. The federal government did really, I think, better than a lot of people were expecting it to do in reuniting the bulk of parents and children because the bulk of parents were being kept in immigration detention and, you know, were reunited with their children and then given the choice to all get deported together um, or to try to continue to stay and fight their case in the U.S. But most of the remaining un you know, unreunited families are either cases where in, you know, I think the bulk of the cases, certainly the plurality, if not the majority, the parent had already been deported. And therefore, how to find the parent is a really open question. And nonprofits have been kind of doing the groundwork of going door to door in Guatemalan villages and trying to find this person so that they can ask, do you want your child to stay in the U.S. or do you want your child to return to you? Or there are cases where the government has said that it's inappropriate for the parent and child to be reunited because the parent has some kind of criminal record or they are concerned about the situation they'd be releasing the child to. It's, you know, it, it's really in endgame. Um, this is – I don't want to say it deserves the reduction in attention that it's gotten because I don't think that's really my place to judge. But it certainly makes sense that we're hearing less about it now that it's – you know, on the scale of 500 than when it was on the scale of 2,500. Uh, but it's also not clear where we go from here. It's, you know, the government can't the snap its fingers and locate 300 parents that had already deported. So we really just don't know what is ultimately going to happen to the remainder of these kids. Do you have a sense, I'm not asking you for kind of a, a moral judgment on this, but as someone who followed this issue, when, when child separation became a policy and became this huge national issue and there was this huge outcry. There was a ton of kind of um, activism from people largely on the left about this, um, with the ACLU going down to Texas. And th there were all these different things. People tried to give money, draw attention to the issue. Do you have some sense of that, of the different kinds of activism, if um, when you look back now or looking forward, you talked about people going through Guatemalan villages activism that really sort of helped uh, reunite these these kids with their parents or, or really helped impact people's lives in some way? Yeah, I mean, I for one thing, this is the biggest climb back that the Trump administration has made on immigration, period. I mean, there have been things that they've had to stop doing because they've literally been ordered to stop doing them. But even before they got the federal court order to reunite families, they you know, Trump had issued this executive order saying that in general, we're not going to separate families anymore. We're going to detain them instead. That was the first time that I'd really seen the administration cowed by the political response to something. And that I mean, that says to me that a lot of the kind of mass action people in the street stuff that doesn't usually 
haven't, you know, that hasn't had an impact on a lot of policies that the Trump administration has pursued since getting into office actually might have had an impact here. Uh, it, it was certainly a very bad look. And it was becoming increasingly clear that, you know, they couldn't really look to Congress to bail them out by passing a law that would supersede the Flores agreement and allow them to detain families together, that the whole we're it's Congress's fault that we're doing what we're doing play wasn't going to work this time. I also think that a lot of attention should be paid to the efforts that were made to to get family, you know, to to buy plane tickets, both for children who were being released so that they could be reunited with their parents and for families that were being released after being reunited. Um, I spent a few days kind of following the efforts that some folks from the advocacy group Forward.us were making in D.C. and also kind of in the local nonprofits that were just receiving these busloads of families who had just been reunited and were being dropped off in the parking lot with a kind of, okay, nonprofit, you tell them where to go from here. Uh, they have an ice check-in, you know, in Boston in a week. Make sure that they're, that they're there by then. And the efforts from a lot of donors, from a lot of activists in pulling together and making sure that those families had plane tickets so that they didn't have to rely on buses, that they a bus system they didn't understand to go to a place that they didn't really know where it was, that they there were people accompanying them through the airports so that, you know, they could deal with going through a TSA line without really having, you know, only having kind of a paper from ICE saying this person is, you know, this is why this person is traveling and being you know, having to go through surveillance separately from their child is a, a traumatic experience for parents and children who've been separated for weeks. So I think that that opportunity that really created an opportunity to show a group of people who had been, you know, arguably mistreated by the uh, by America, whose only experience of America was in a detention center, that there were people who wanted to help them, you know, thrive, that there were people who cared about their well-being as a family. And even though, you know, statistically, most of those families are going to end up being deported. A uh, few of them are likely to successfully get asylum and stay in the U.S. For the people who were engaged in those efforts, making sure that people saw a kinder face of America during the time they were here was really important. We'll get back to my conversation with Dara Lind right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What is the status of DACA today, um, both legally and politically, in your view? Uh, legally is a lot easier to answer. Uh, currently, if you people who had previously applied for DACA, who were you know who had existing work permits and deportation protections, are allowed to get those renewed. Uh, that is the result of several court orders that stopped the administration from refusing to grant renewals anymore. Uh, it was going to sunset them from last September to this previous March. Uh, that got put on hold. So that's about, you know, there were 600,000 people who had current DACA when they uh, announced an end of the program a year ago. So that, you know, that's some 600,000 people who are currently able to remain protected. The calculus there is that you can apply for a two-year renewal, but 
you don't stack it onto the work permit you already have. So a lot of people are going through this, you know, guessing game of how long will this window be open if somebody has a work permit that currently that is, you know, due to expire six months from now, do they apply now and potentially shorten the amount of time they can stay by six months? Or do they wait a few months to apply and potentially have that door closed? Like that's, you know, that's the the situation that a lot of DACA recipients are facing of kind of being in a weird zombie limbo for the last several months. It's going to kind of, it's going to come up to the Supreme Court because there the Trump administration has now gotten setbacks in several circuit courts or rather several district courts. But because there haven't been circuit court rulings yet, it's probably not going to get to the Supreme Court before the end of this coming term. So plausibly, given that it's a high profile issue, nine months or something. Yeah, June twenty nineteen is it's probably and probably given the current bent of the Supreme Court and given the likely confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh, we're going to be looking at a five to four ruling that it was okay for Trump to terminate the program. So, you know, that's it. It is plausible that we're looking at the impending death of DACA once that ruling goes into effect in late June. In the meantime, of course, Congress could, in theory, pass something that permanently allows people to get legal status that is, you know, not not a revival of DACA, but an actual legislative fix that would provide formal legal status for people instead of just, you know, deferring them from deportation. Congress does not. Congress had an appetite to do that a year ago. That appetite disappeared when it became clear that the Trump administration was willing to accept nothing less than the full implementation of its complete immigration agenda in exchange for legalization of DACA recipients. And so even beyond the standard, it's an election year. They don't want to do anything between now and, you know, certainly the lame duck or probably even next January. I'm not necessarily seeing a Republican Senate, much less like two Republican chambers, uh, deciding that the impending Supreme Court decision is going to provide the kick in the butt that the you know official end of DACA last September didn't provide. Right. Although, uh, you know, the the trouble for the, the main trouble for kind of um, for DACA, people in favor of DACA has been the House more so than the Senate. And I guess if Democrats were to take the House and take office in January, they could very easily, I assume they would, pass some sort of bill, which it seems like would have some chance of, of passing the Senate and um, would then go to President Trump. I guess the White House would need to uh, decide what they want to do. But th- this seems like an issue, at least theoretically, where you could come to some sort of deal because Trump has made noises in the past about the fact that he's in favor of duck. I mean, he said a million different things, but it, it does feel like this is the type of thing where conceivably there could be a legislative fix. May, is everyone kind of kicking the can down the road until maybe Democrats take power or? I mean, I so there are two separate questions here. One is about the Republican Senate. And I do agree. I mean, I think that there was definitely more appetite in among Republicans in the Senate than in the House. Uh, you got, you know, when the Senate finally did debate immigration for like three days in you know February or March or whenever it was, there were really surprising Republicans like Mike Rounds of South Dakota coming to the table and being like, no, seriously, let's find some compromise that we can support. But the champions of DACA were, you know, Lindsey Graham to a certain extent, although Lindsey Graham was portraying it as let's find a solution that Donald Trump kind of, you know, that that fits Donald Trump's standards and Jeff Flake and Jeff Flake isn't going to be in Congress anymore. And meanwhile, you know, with neither McCain nor Flake in in the Senate, it's entirely plausible that 
immigration leadership is going to fall to John Cornyn, who has always been the one saying we need a fix on this and has always found a reason that any given compromise bill doesn't meet his standards. So it's just it's going to be a question of who's willing to shepherd it through as much as who's willing to vote for the final bill. And of course, this is all predicated on there are a lot of Republicans who do not want to vote yes on any immigration bill unless they can guarantee that the president's going to have their backs. And Donald Trump, you know, you it's not just that Trump has said a million things on DACA. It's that Donald Trump keeps saying, I want to make a deal. Let's make a deal. And then the detailed, you know, then Congress has said, you tell us what your deal breakers are and we'll make a deal that that avoids those deal breakers. And then the White House has put out this ridiculous list of deal breakers. Um, you know, it's the, the first it was the wall. Then it was the wall and ending the diversity visa. Then it was a wall and ending the diversity visa and ending, quote unquote, chain migration, which the White House then proceeded to define as, you know, severely restricting family-based migration to the United States, which is a majority of all legal immigration to the U.S. And so, and oh, and then there were added restrictions on asylum because that's when they were starting to worry about Central Americans coming into the U.S. So the both the fact of the moving of the goalposts and the kind of substance of by the time you got to the actual bill that the White House was willing to endorse, it was a bill that was too extreme for half the Republican caucus. I, I, that dynamic within the White House has to get stabilized, I think, before Republicans are going to be willing to stick their necks out again. And I don't know, as long as Stephen Miller is in the room, whether that stability is ever going to look like, yes, we are committed to doing a deal. Let me ask you, though, also, just in in terms of kind of how this fits into the broader picture of things. We've had DACA has been one of many issues that have kind of dominated the conversation about immigration. We've had family separation. Um, We've had kind of this larger crackdown on immigrants in the United States. And has this seemed to affect at all the number of people trying to get into the United States across the border over the past 18 months? The most influential thing in terms of people crossing the border and, you know, to specify here, we're talking about people crossing the border without papers. Yes. Um, is that is Donald Trump getting elected? Uh, we we saw when he was inaugurated in before after the election, but before inauguration, there was kind of this there these unusually high numbers of apprehensions indicating that people were trying to get in before Trump got into office. And then when he got inaugurated, there was this massive, massive decline. And bear in mind the baseline numbers for people coming in over the last several years are historic. In historical context, they're really, really low, right? We're talking about a third to a half of what we would have seen in, say, 2000. Even given that, we were looking at these ridiculously low numbers in January, February, March. And of course, Trump being Trump, this was taken as proof that they had finally secured the border, that all it took was somebody talking tough. Most Migration experts could have told you that that wasn't going to hold. Most, you know, Border Patrol agents themselves were concerned it wasn't going to hold because while the, there had been some executive orders that ordered changes in policy toward people crossing the border, they were really not – there wasn't a whole lot of leeway in terms of what they could do under current law. And so those numbers started creeping up and up and up. You had an unusual increase through late summer during a time when you usually have a decrease and then up into fall and spring. So the kind of the the Trump administration's use of family separation and the 
panic that started when there was all of this noise about the caravan of people coming in from Central America was basically a response to numbers reverting to where they'd been in 2014, 2015, or yeah, 2015, 2016. Um, And that's kind of continued. There hasn't been the, we don't, we can't really tell what, you know, the impact of family separation per se was because you can't judge, okay, starting on this day, people would have made their decision based on this information or not. But generally, we know that those kind of changes don't have a massive impact when you're talking about families and when you're talking about asylum seekers, both of whom tend to be much more concerned about what they're leaving than about the potential risks. You know, they're willing to take a lot of risk in order to leave a situation where they feel their lives are in danger. So, you know, it's not it. There is evidence that a, you know, total crackdown that a world in which literally no one could ever legally stay in the U.S. might result in fewer people coming in. But that's not the world we live in under U.S. and international law. And short of that, it really doesn't look like the Trump administration is able to move the needle in a way that is more powerful than, you know, whatever gang threats people are fleeing from when they make the decision to leave. Let me ask you before we before we end here about the Democratic Party and immigration going forward. We're obviously only several months away from Democrats declaring that they're running for president. Uh, how much how much movement? I, I mean, abolish ICE is kind of the slogan and the idea, I should say, that has captured a lot of people on the left. But in terms of putting forward a coherent immigration policy, how do you see Democrats, broadly speaking, and you can talk to specific ones if you've if you've seen any specific proposals, laying out a policy that would either be different from the policies Obama put forward or that Hillary Clinton put forward in 2016, broadly speaking? I mean, I think that Hillary Clinton's immigration proposals in 2016 were radical in a way that didn't get a lot of attention at the time. Um, and so what we're seeing Democrats do now is is moving that forward even further than she was. But really, it did not get a ton of attention that Hillary Clinton was essentially proposing that only people who are convicted of crimes should be removed from the U.S. Like that's not that has not been the standard of immigration law ever. The only question has been what does ICE have the resources to remove? And that's kind of, you know, that's been and what are ICE's kind of operating guidelines, even under the most kind of restrictive of ICE era of the Obama administration in 2014, 2015, 2016, you weren't seeing something as narrow as what Clinton was proposing. The abolish ICE meme is basically a stalking horse for an even more radical version of that where there's it is not a priority of the federal government to engage in immigration enforcement per se. That doesn't necessarily have to look like the abolition of ICE. In fact, legislatively, it probably doesn't look like it's still, you know, you still have 11 million people who are unauthorized in the U.S. It's just that we're not going to pay anybody to deport them anymore. Instead, it's probably going to look something like we're going to legalize everybody. And then the only question is, you know, do you cut to the right by saying we're going to legalize everybody but make it damn hard to be an unauthorized immigrant after that? Or do you do what most Democrats are doing now and saying we're going to legalize everybody and we're going to, you know, reduce the risk that someone is going to live under the threat of deportation? 
What I'm not seeing from Democrats, and I wonder if this is going to change or not, is an interest in expanding permissiveness either on the asylum front where you can see a lot of the problems with the Department of Justice and Jeff Sessions kind of trying to change the interpretation of or trying to enforce their interpretation of asylum laws down for immigration judges and asylum officers is that there's a little bit of a disconnect between what people are fleeing right now and what U.S. asylum law guarantees protection for. And I'm not seeing anybody kind of recognize that that is a problem that current law is not equipped to solve and deal with that. And I'm not seeing anyone saying the answer isn't to restrict legal immigration, it's to expand it. They're, generally, Democrats have been responsive to uh, Latino and immigrant advocacy groups on this. And those groups are going to be sensitive to the needs of immigrants who are currently in the U.S. Specific, you know, even though many of them may themselves be unauthorized, they're going to have you know, relatives who are legal citizens who can vote, et cetera. Um, but it is interesting that the kind of America is a welcoming place narrative hasn't lent itself to particular here are ways in which we're not really fulfilling our, you know, our obligations or the idea that America is going to be a beacon to the world. Here are specific ways we can let more people in. I guess I guess the the way to put that is that despite the meme that any restriction on immigration enforcement is open borders, Democrats aren't talking about opening the borders as much as they're talking about dealing with people who are here now. And do you think that that makes political sense or doesn't make political sense? I mean, do you have, do you have some sense of that? Immigration is always a bit of a weird issue because a lot of people the the great mass of people just want to see a solution. Um, it's been really surprising to see white progressives mobilized on changes in immigration policy that a decade ago would have only mobilized, you know, Latinos and people who are really paying attention. But even with that, I think a lot of people just feel that there's a, a state of disequilibrium and something needs to be done to fix it. And so there are a lot of opportunities for, you know, for people, for politicians to get spooked about particular things that they're worried about that, you know, some of their constituents will be angry at. And on the other side, this general sense that something needs to change and something needs to be done. And so I'm not, you know, I don't know whether this is going to end up mobilizing people who aren't, you know, restrictionists on the conservative side of the ledger or, or you know, mostly non-white progressives for whom this is their key issue in future election cycles. I, I think that it's been interesting to see the, you know, the attempts to make Democrats the party of MS-13 on the Republican side backfire. That indicates to me that we might actually be in a different world where you can't automatically get, you know, middle of the road voters to be terrified by any restriction on immigration enforcement. But in the midst of all of these other issues, it's you know, immigration has never been an issue that the that a plurality of Americans have said is the most important thing. Only when there are really big news stories like, you know, family separation, there was like a one month spike in everybody saying this was the most important thing. In the absence of that, it's something where the policy, you know, it the sides are pretty well drawn, certainly on the Democratic side at this point. You're not going to see people not turning out because someone is insufficiently liberal on immigration if they're calling for legalizing, you know, the bulk of the 11 million currently here. So it's just very hard to game out what an actual, 
what the policy to politics direction looks like. The other side is much easier, right? Because we saw it in 2012, the world where Barack Obama won re-election largely on the strength of the Latino vote. And that made everybody decide that they needed to give something to Latino voters by passing immigration reform. That's an easy dynamic to identify. The dynamic by which, you know, who's going to get mobilized depending on which policies is, I think, much harder. Two-part question about Abolish ICE. One is, as someone who follows this policy very closely, what what do you think of it when you hear just in pure policy terms? And two, is that an area, unlike some of these other things you seem to be highlighting, where you think that it would be a danger for Democrats politically? My thought on it is that it's a meme. It's known that it's a meme. Like, no one is... There, there aren't white papers. There very deliberately aren't white papers. There, are, there is a policy conversation you can have about what would it look like for the federal government to decide that a dedicated law enforcement agency should not exist, and what other you know agencies should absorb that function. Like I said, I, I think it's extreme. I, I don't think it makes sense to have this conversation while assuming that you're still going to have 11 million unauthorized immigrants, right? I. I no one actually wants people to be in the U.S. and not get deported but not be able to work either. So I think it's kind of a secondary question of, well, OK, first we legalize everybody. And, you know, that's that's where once you get the white papers, that's where they're going to go. And so, you know, I'm I'm very I'm interested to see where that conversation heads. I think that I personally really do want to know whether there's going to be a constituency for, no, we're not just going to give ICE new marching orders. We're actually going to say that there is no longer a dedicated federal law enforcement agency that is prosecuting these specific violations of the law. Um, But as far as the politics are concerned, I think that it's very easy to overstate the extent to which some progressives using a slogan is going to be the thing that, you know, the swing voter in Iowa casts their vote based on. I think that there's there's something of a repeat player problem here where it's really easy for moderates and centrists to say, this is going to be the thing that makes Trump win re-election. And in reality, only one of those can actually be the thing or a combination of them. But, you know, on the margin, it's not likely that it's going to be abolish ICE. You've had Republicans calling Democrats weak on the borders for ever. I remember in 2011, in 2010, 2011, when Tom Tancredo was calling for the impeachment of Barack Obama for not enforcing, for not securing the border, when Obama was setting records for how many immigrants were getting deported. So it's, it just, it seems to me that the Republican attack on Democrats on immigration operates fairly independently of what Democrats are actually saying. Darlind is a reporter for Vox, a senior reporter for Vox, who has been covering the Trump administration and specifically immigration policy. Dar, I see you just wrote on the uh, on the anonymous uh, New York Times op-ed about the Trump administration. I assume you do not. Yeah. You cannot reveal on this podcast who, who wrote it. Man, if I kn- knew who had written it, I would have put that on the site. I'm not held by the New York Times confidentiality agreement. Fair enough. All right. Well, we're not going to break any. <laughs> we're not going to break any news here. Uh, I apologize. Thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Special thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios here in Berkeley. And thanks also to Danielle Hewitt for the extra help today at Slate in D.C. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for information about the show.